Welcome to the first full episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvel Stories Countdown podcast, in which we count down the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday from December 31st, 2014 to June 1st, 2016. I'm your regular host, Blaine Dollar, and joining me as the first in our rotating list of co-hosts, Mr. John M. Wilson. Welcome, John. Hello. Thanks for having me, Blaine. Oh, thanks for agreeing to come aboard. The Death of Spider-Man is a pretty cool story. It's one that, that's pretty near and dear to my heart. So I was very anxious to, or very eager rather, to be on the show to talk about it. Oh, it's great to hear. It was one that, we'll get into that a little bit later, but it's one I remember reading on release too, and it, it had an impact on me as well. So as the listeners have figured out by now, this week we are dealing with the Death of Spider-Man. And that was... The portion that made it onto the 75 Greatest Marvels list is Ultimate Comics Spider-Man issues 156 to 160. So the story was written by Brian Michael Bendis, penciled by Mark Bagley, inked primarily by Andy Lanning, who will be coming up again later in the podcast, with some aid from Andrew Hennessy, colored by Justin Ponser, lettered by Joe Sabino and Corey Petit, and edited by Sana Amanat and Mark Panicia under editor-in-chief Axel Alonso. So those are the core issues of an event that actually went a little bit longer than that. There were a three-issue Death of Spider-Man prelude in Ultimate Comics Spider-Man itself. There were aftermath issues, and they were quasi-crossover or tie-in issues with Ultimate Avengers versus New Avengers as well. Yeah, the Ultimate Avengers versus... Was it Avengers versus New Avengers or Avengers versus Ultimates? I forget now which one it was. It was Avengers versus New Avengers. Okay, so that has a whole storyline that's going on t uh, parallel to this. And it's like those two storylines meet at a single critical point. And that's about all they have to do with each other. But that single critical point is the instigator of this story in Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah, that crossover... Aside from the last three pages of issue 157, it really serves only to say, this is why these guys are busy and don't show up. <laughs> and this is also why Spider-Man's dying for the rest of the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those are three pretty major pages. Yeah. All right, so those who are interested, this was originally published, the first issue, 156, came out on March 23rd, 2011. Final issue came out August 3rd, 2011. It's available in Marvel Digital Unlimited and has been collected in various paperbacks and hardcovers. So it's not terribly difficult to track down if you care to read it yourself. So, John, what was your first introduction to the story? I was an Ultimate Comics fan from way back. Uh, during a period where I wasn't really collecting comics, I discovered online versions of Ultimate Comics for free through Marvel's website. Uh, back whenever they were just doing that, you could just go online and read comics. So I read the first dozen or so issues of ultimate spider-man just sitting at work waiting for calls to come in and then whenever i actually got back into collecting comics in 2008 i started reading the ultimate comics avidly and caught up on the entire run 2011 i no longer was actually doing it actively but i had been doing a ultimate spider-man podcast called teenage wasteland which is sadly defunct and no longer available but ultimate spider-man is one of my favorite series of all time especially the Mark Bagley run that ended around issue 110. Um, so I read this. I was looking forward to it. They, um, whenever the promotional material started coming out with the buildup and the publicity, because they were talking about the death of Spider-Man for a while. And, and there was a lot of speculation as to whether Peter Parker would actually really get killed. 
And then, of course, Miles Morales made the news. And sure enough, Peter Parker, he's not only merely dead, he's really most sincerely dead, at least in the Ultimate Universe. So watching one of my favorite characters and one of my favorite incarnations of that character come to the heroic and rather majestic end of his career was uh, was was a pretty heartfelt experience. Yeah. So for me, was similar. I was also reading it regularly. I got back into comics myself a little bit sooner than that. It was actually the first Spider-Man movie by Sam Raimi that pulled me okay. back into collecting. And Iron Man did it for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I got in again. Great movie. Helped sort of relight that spark and get that flame going again. So I was collecting a few titles and I at this point had the entire Ultimate Universe. And I actually haven't read much of anything with Miles Morales, partly because by the time this came out, Ultimate Spider-Man was really the only Ultimate title that I was enjoying Mm -hmm. and really looking forward to each week. The rest, it was more, well, I had every Ultimate comic up to that point, might as well keep going. I'm a big Daredevil fan in general, so Ultimatum killing off Daredevil before we ever actually see him fight on panel didn't do a lot for me either. (laughs) That was a bit off-putting. Yeah, he had been in the Ultimate Marvel team-up story way, way back in the day. And he had a couple of origin miniseries, but when, but Daredevil was one of those characters I always wanted to see more of in the Ultimate Universe, and then he was dead. Yep, you had the three-issue crossover with the Punisher in Ultimate Marvel team-up, four issues of Ultimate Daredevil and Elektra, he showed up in the Ultimate Elektra five-issue miniseries, and he showed up for a few issues of Bendis' first six-issue arc on Ultimate X-Men. But again, in none of those we did we ever actually see him fight. We did get to the point where Peter was saying, oh, I saved your life from the, the police. And he's going, no, you didn't. So he was ready to take on, you know, a squadron of oh, armed police. Funny. I never really thought about that, but you're right. He's kind of there and he's menacing and rude to Spider-Man. Yeah. Telling him to get out of the suit. But yeah, we never actually. And then he died. And then they had that fake out Daredevil at the beginning of Ultimate, Aven- uh, Ultimate Avengers 3. I believe so. Yeah. The one with the, you know, where all the heroes become vampires at the same time that right. Curse of the X-Men was going on. Yeah. To the point that when I was cataloging them in my database, I actually used the same plot synopsis for the first issues of both stories because <laughs> they were that similar. Vampires became like everywhere for five minutes. It was really, really weird. Yeah. So in any event, this came out, as we said, it wrapped up in August of 2011. And the new 52 launched in September 2011. And I had to figure out... There's a lot of the new 52 titles I wanted to give a, a try, and I had to figure out how to budget for it, so the Ultimate line got dropped, just wholesale. So after Death of Spider-Man, that's when I stopped collecting anything in the Ultimate line. I still read it for quite a while after that. Spider-Man continued to be the top book. Whenever they did the Ultimate X-Men relaunch that really focused on Kitty Pride and such, I, feel, I can't remember now if that was right after Ultimate or if that was later. I think it was. Anyways. So that era was a really solid era for me, but it eventually petered out and Spider-Man was still the only thing I was reading. And then after the latest relaunch, as we're recording this, with Miles Morales, Spider-Man, and he's on a team of new Teenage Ultimates, at that point, so many things had changed that my interest levels have just fallen off. I may go back and read it. I don't have anything against the series. I just, it's 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 not kicking it for me anymore. <laughs> so Yeah, so it sounds like we're about in the same boat. There are more interesting and appealing titles on the market than I can budget for. So other things just became higher priority. And I like the idea of the Ultimate Universe. In a lot of ways, it parallels DC's Earth 2 concept from the Bronze Age. You have alternate versions of characters. 
where the rules apply less stringently. You could liken the death of Spider-Man to the death of Batman and that Adventure Comics issue from back in the 70s. But the Ultimate Universe has lasted a lot longer than because Earth 2, you know, was kind of done away with in the crisis. And although they brought it back now, it's, it's kind of a new thing now. But it's, it's, it's another continuity where other versions of Marvel's heroes can interact. And we always want to see them interact with the real, real versions, but they've kept that to an almost non-existent minimum. Mm-hmm. Although I, I think now Miles Morales is in new X-Men, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I haven't been reading that either, but my understanding is that the all-new X-Men ended up in the Ultimate Universe. Okay, maybe that's what happened. Yeah, so he is working with them, but that's the impression I got from the solicits. I may have misread them, <laughs> but they're definitely working together. And actually, I expect my proper introduction to Miles Morales will be in the Edge of the Spider-Verse, or in the Spider-Verse crossover, which tells listeners how far in advance this was recorded. <laughs> so I believe that crossover is actually done by the time this is released. We haven't seen solicits past September, uh, December yet, I don't think, so it could still be going, I don't know. Okay, so now we'll do a quick pause to let you guys hear a promo for one of John's other shows that are running right now. And then we'll come back with a plot synopsis and the significance of this story. Yay, my shows. What's wrong, Star Wars fans? Disney. Disney killed the expanded universe. They killed the whole thing. It's dead. Every single book. Not just the novels, but the comics, and the video games too. It's like they're just stories, and Disney threw them out like stories. I hate them! Okay, Star Wars fans, relax. Here, have a Snickers. No one destroyed your Star Wars Expanded Universe. In fact, I'm going to give you a whole new opportunity to go back and explore all those books and comics that have helped to shape and mold this universe we love so much. Join me on the Star Wars Saga Cast, where I'll be walking through the various branches of the Star Wars Expanded Universe, much of it for my very first time. I'll be bringing you short episodes that review comics, longer episodes that explore the novels, and in-film commentaries, because you know you're just dying to hear what some random guy on the internet has to say about movies that you've seen a hundred times before. You know you are. So come along for the Star Wars Saga Cast at thestarwarssagacast.com. Welcome back. So as we said, we'd be going next into the significance and plot synopsis of this. The significance of this story is right there in the title. This genuinely is the death of Spider-Man. And beyond that, it's actually the death of Peter Parker. I was one of the people coming in going, "Ah, they wouldn't give spoilers like that in the promo material. And I was betting the Spider-Man identity would go by the wayside and Peter Parker would have a new identity akin to the late 90s relaunch when he had four different identities going on because he promised MJ he wouldn't be Spider-Man anymore. But no, he legitimately died. And although I hear there's rumors he may be back, he's not back the same way, may not be the same Peter Parker. Again, that may all be clear by the time this podcast is released. But it did allow for the introduction of Miles Morales. And it basically allowed for a massive change in the Ultimate Universe. As John said, 
the rules don't necessarily apply. So Mar- Ultimate Universe seems to be the place where Marvel writers have the freedom to change the status quo for the average citizen. So when you're in the Marvel 616, average schmuck on the street still lives a life much like those of us do on Earth 1218 here. Whereas in the Ultimate Universe, you can have Captain America as your president and see most of New York wiped out in the ultimatum wave. Right. And have a civil war split the country and then bring it back together through superheroics. It's an interesting thing because as you were talking about, I was thinking about, well, over in DC, you know, they've had characters die and others take up the mantle. In fact, legacy is one of the running themes of DC through a lot of the 90s and 2000s, multiple Robins over the years, multiple flashes over the years. Even Batman was handed off a couple of times, although Bruce Wayne always seemed to come back. And then once it became clear that DC was going to start going into film, I think they wanted to reestablish their their name brands more consistently. And so a lot of that legacy concept has gone by the wayside. Whereas for Marvel, keeping true to the brand seemed to always be the plan. If Steve Rogers ever set aside the Captain America suit, he was back in it after that story arc was over. Whenever they brought Bucky Barnes back as Captain America, it was the plan to put Steve Rogers back in the suit pretty quickly. But there was such fan reaction to Bucky that actually stretched that out longer than intended. So long, fact, that I thought they were actually going to, you know, keep that trigger pulled. I I was very silly and naive. But because Steve Rogers did eventually come back and now he's not Captain America again. And I'm pretty sure that's only going to last for a while because that's just the nature of the medium. But killing off Spider-Man, even though it's in this secondary Ultimate Universe, killing off Spider-Man, for all intents and purposes, permanently, was a really, really big deal. And they have a second Spider-Man, and he is the one. And everyone in the universe knows who Peter Parker was Spider-Man, and they all respect him and, and, and look up to his death. And the death of that character has had a major and lasting impact, not just for the readers of the universe, but for the characters in the universe itself. Yeah, it certainly has. And that's, generally speaking, I find in comics, there's four levels of death. There's, you know, the least significant level of death is, well, we didn't see the villain's body, but no one can survive that fall. Right. Which, I mean, up to this point, not even the characters believe they're really dead anymore. Which is a staple of early Marvel. I mean, he killed off Doctor Doom every single time Doctor Doom showed up. Yeah. But he managed to survive. Yeah, the start of the next issue was, oh, and here's how we got through it, even if it happened to be through the aid of a randomly passing UFO. And they just stopped caring about explaining how they got out of the death. (laughs) Yeah. You have characters who die, and they're just just there later. I thought you died. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's even an an issue of Cable and Deadpool where Cable's dead, and Deadpool's there the next issue, starting by the grave going, it's been three weeks and you're still dead. Huh. Actually, we're going to have one of those I thought you died moments here in this this story because uh, Norman Osborn is kind of annoying in his continuity in this story. But that's okay. We'll get to that. Yeah. So that's the first level of death. The second level of death is the one that, by and large, Marvel sticks to. That's the one you were just talking about, where the character dies, but the creative team that kills him has the plan and knowledge in place of how that character returns. Right? Like when Peter Parker recently died and was replaced by Doc Ock in the Marvel Universe. The same creative team brought him back. And that was the plan from all along. They wanted to do a story, take a year and a half to tell the story of somebody else being Spider-Man, and they did. They did, or as you said, Bucky Cap, or a lot of these other characters. 
DC is the one that seems to stick to what I consider level three death, where when they kill them, as far as the creative team is concerned, they are dead forever. And they're brought back down the road by a new creative team. So that's your Barry Allen's after Crisis. That's your Hal Jordan after Emerald Twilight and after Parallax and Final Night, where they do eventually come back, but that wasn't part of the plan the moment they died. Right. It's just something that happened. And that seems to be where a lot of DC's legacy heroes come from, aside from the Silver Age relaunches. Bucky Barnes would probably also fall into that category because Stanley killed him off whenever he brought back it. Well, first Bucky was killed in story in the 40s, and then Bucky was killed a different way in flashback in the 60s, but he was dead until the 2000s. That's right. And then the final level of death is Ben Parker, where dead actually means dead. Right. And the original Gwen Stacy. Yes. Not her clone. Yeah, not the Gwen Miles clone that's floating around. You, you'll hear more about her when we get to, I believe it's story 66 on the countdown. No, sorry, 65. My memory's failed me. And then, of course, you'll be finishing out with Gwen Stacy at the, at the uh, episode number, or, or story number one. Which is the original death of Gwen Stacy. <laughs> Quick synopsis of each of the five issues here. So kicking off with issue 156, well, you know, they say in real life it's always darkest before the dawn. This is dramatized fiction. It's always brightest right before it goes very, very dark. So issue 156 opens with Peter's life on a very good track. He's back with MJ. Uh, Aunt May, Gwen Stacy, Johnny Storm, and Bobby Drake are all living with him, all fully aware and supportive of his secret identity. He's getting trained by Captain America and the Ultimates, even though Cap thinks he's too reckless and doesn't really respect the specter of death very well. J. Jonah Jameson knows he's Spider-Man and is giving his full support behind him. So Peter's actually in a very good place on page one here. It's coming off very well. Unfortunately, things are going on. This is when we find out that Norman Osborn is alive and manages to escape S.H.I.E.L.D. custody, as well as releasing enough other criminals to put together a Sinister Six with himself, Dr. Octopus, Craven, Electro, Vulture, and Sandman. And it's that and the events of Avengers versus New Avengers that cut short Peter's first training session with Captain America at the end of issue 156. In issue 157, we actually get a very nice character moment within this new Sinister Six as Dr. Octopus essentially decides to leave, because he's saying, hey, it was never my plan to become a career criminal. I was a scientist first and foremost. That's what I want to get back to. So Doc Ock has decided he wants to get back to scientists. That's what he always wanted to do. After all, he and Norman co-created Spider-Man, and that's a pretty significant event. So he figures he can go off to Roxxon or Latveria and get a job there. Well, apparently Norman doesn't like quitters or sharing credit for the creation of Spider-Man. And he takes it out against Doc Ock in a pretty big way and ends up killing him right in the street. And there's one station that tunes into that rather than Avengers versus New Avengers. So Peter finds out about it from a call from MJ. So he's out there investigating that while the rest of the Avengers are elsewhere. And when Peter knows that Norman Osborn is out with the Sinister Six, he goes home to get tell May and Gwen to get the heck out of Dodge. And he was going to say the same with Johnny and Bobby, but they weren't there. So he says, you know, at least leave them a note, tell them to hold up and get safe till this is over. And he heads out to the scene of the Avengers New Avengers conflict. And these are those three major pages that represent the entire crossover here. The Punisher tries to kill Captain America. Spider-Man sees it coming, saves Cap, but takes the bullet instead. And that's the end of issue 157. 
and the bullet does go through his lower torso, a little off to the side. So it's serious, but not immediately fatal. Issue 158, Peter wakes up alone. And again, you've got to read the crossover to find out why the Avengers didn't stick around to help him. Uses some webbing to sort of patch the hole and gets back out there because he knows that there's still issues. So Craven, Electro, Sandman, and Vulture all head out to the Tinkerer and get re-equipped with some new gear to go out and take out Spider-Man. And they actually get to Peter Parker's house faster than Peter Parker does and end up facing down the Human Torch and Iceman, who've just come back after a failed double date. And the pair get up a put up a good fight, but they're outgunned and they're not experienced against this particular set of villains. And yeah, so the, these four basically put those guys down for the count, apparently. And it ends with Peter showing up without his mask. And as issue 159 starts, it's clear that Peter's just barely hanging on and he's severely hurt. So the Sinister Six decide to take advantage of that. And they cause enough of a ruckus that all the people from the neighborhood are coming out to check it out. But this is the first time that they've seen Spider-Man without his mask, which is a little bit surprising considering how many times he's lost his mask in the issues prior <laughs> to this. And in the second movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually my review of the second movie. I commented he's got the secret identity-keeping abilities of Ultimate Spider-Man. Right. <laughs> so Peter is just holding ground and trying to keep safe. Doris, the neighbor from across the street, calls May Parker on her cell phone, confirms that May's not there, and says... I don't know how else to say this. I think Peter is Spider-Man and there's some men here and they're killing him. At which point May whips the car around and boots it straight back. And when she gets there, she gets there actually just in time to save Peter from Electro by putting three bullets in him, which Gwen says is the very definition of awesome. So May, you know, she does recognize the threats of Peter's lifestyle and she is clearly prepared because she is now packing heat and when it comes to saving peter she is very willing to use it which is an interesting little character moment for me and the issue ends with the green goblin showing up although his absence is never really explained in these five issues i don't remember if it was in the crossover or not because i haven't read that since 2011 he just kind of disappeared after killing doc ock and then shows up here and issue 160 opens with mj looking out her window and seeing the fight trying to go over there to help peter which her mom forbids, but, you know, she knows Peter's in serious trouble. She, of course, sneaks out anyway. Peter manages to wake Johnny up to help him lend a hand and fight up against the goblin, but he realizes the goblin's powers are largely fire-based. So throwing the human torch against him recharges him and powers him up rather than taking him down. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Okay. Because there is a bit with the green goblin at the beginning of this fight at the Parker house Whenever Human Torch and Iceman first come out, Human Torch goes after the Green Goblin and with his fire powers knocks him out. And so the Green Goblin's actually been unconscious for a lot of the fight for the very same reason that he powers up supercharged at this point in the fight. So it's some inconsistency in the storytelling, but you forgot about the Green Goblin because he got knocked out first. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I missed that. I was fighting some kind of bug yesterday when I was rereading these, so I may miss a couple no, of the fine. details. It's, it's, it is kind of weird how he is gone through so much of the fight and the reasoning is not consistent, but that's okay. We'll keep going. Okay. So anyway, Johnny, like you said, he ends up fueling up the goblin this time. Peter does get a hand at this point. MJ has stolen a semi and floors it and basically hits Norman Osborn with the truck, you know, akin to 
Peter hitting the Hulk with a car in Ultimate Marvel Team-Up issue 2, if memory serves. That puts Norman down, but not out. He does get back up again, and it's not until Peter picks up that semi and beats him with it that it seems like he's finally down for good. But at this point, Peter has just lost so much blood, he's taken a beating after that. He ends up dying from his wounds with the final words, I couldn't save him. Uncle Ben, I couldn't save him, no matter what I did. But I saved you. I did it. I did. And those words were spoken to his Aunt May. So we see that's the the power and the responsibility. He's done a lot of this to protect May. And even in this issue, he was trying to get May out of there to the point that he told Gwen, I don't care if you have to hit her on the head with a hammer and carry her out, get her out of here. So that is the quick synopsis. Now, overall, it is enjoyable on some of it because the comic storytelling, as we talked about with Death, has almost trained me as a reader not to believe characters are actually going to die and stay dead. Mm -hmm. I kept... You know, with that Death of Spider-Man plastered all over, I was waiting for the twist where they can get away saying, oh, that's technically the death of Spider-Man, but not necessarily Peter Parker or, or the rest. I was waiting for that loophole. Right, escaping through the loophole, yeah. Yeah, and it never actually came, and that was probably the biggest surprise. I would have been less surprised by the death of Spider-Man if it hadn't been plastered all over the promotional material and they just did it than I was when it happened. yeah. It's interesting because a lot of times these deaths, you know, even in the last 10 years, things have changed a bit. Because I think about the death of Captain America back in 2006, 2007, and how that pretty much snuck up on everybody. And if you didn't read Captain America 25, and you didn't watch the news that morning, you didn't know Cap was dead. Yeah. Nowadays, whenever there's a big event like that, it's broadcast, if not three months ahead of time in the solicits, than like a week ahead of time and the previews and reviews and everything whenever the comic hasn't come out yet. So I think it was an interesting choice for them to take advantage of the media machine and say, hey, guess what? Spider-Man's going to die, and we're telling you about it months ahead of time. It's going to be a big crossover event, and this is where you need to be. It's just, it's they don't always do it like that, and so it was an interesting choice. And yeah, it does kind of put you off because like you have the time to question, you have the time to wonder. Is he really going to die? And at the same time, they make such a big deal out of it that if they were to go back on their word, it's almost like they've set themselves up so high that they're going to fail if they go back on their word, that kind of thing. Yeah. They didn't make as big a deal about Peter Parker's quote-unquote death and Amazing Spider-Man as they did this one, I don't think. No, that's they've got two different approaches. And the Amazing 700... They were trying to completely blindside the audience. They didn't want people to know that Peter Parker was dying until it actually happened. And that's something, if you listen to Word Balloon, which I recommend to any comic fan, there's an interview with Dan Slott, and he still believes that the end of Thunderbolts was one of the most shocking endings, partly because most people weren't reading solicits, and partly because they managed to keep it quiet. And even the fans, when they picked up that issue and read it, and I'm not going to spoil it because that also made the list, it's coming, (laughs) <laughs> I know of the event, but I have not read it. So it'll be fun to read that whenever we get there. Yeah, it is fun. And when people are reading it, nobody knew what was coming. We'd seen the Thunderbolts popping up in other areas as sort of guest stars coming in, helping out various other heroes or teams of heroes. And that ends with a whammy to the point that, you know, one of the things Dan Slott loved is the respect the audience had for that when they were reading it and the fans saw that whammy. He remembers people in the comic shop not even giving it away, just showing up and going, 
guys, if you didn't buy this, you need to buy this and read this. And they weren't even telling them why. They were just saying, no, 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 this is a must read. You won't believe what happens. And left it at that. And Slot tried the same thing to a fair amount of success with his Mighty Avengers run. There was a, a last page reveal on that one uh, related to the Scarlet Witch that put the team together. This was the first time I read this as just a Spider-Man story. I, I've read the story through twice before. I read it when it came out and I was reading Ultimate uh, Ultimate New Ultimates versus Ultimates. <laughs> Yeah. Or whatever that was called. Yeah, Ultimate <laughs> I, Avengers versus New Ultimates. That's I, right, Ultimate yeah, Avengers versus sure New here. Ultimates. Yeah. Gosh, when that came out, I was reading those issues, so I read you know each thing as it hit, and then I did a reread of the entire Ultimate line over the course of 2011, maybe or 2012. 2012, I reread the entire Ultimate line, and so I reread it then also in order of publication. So reading it for this, I just had the Spider-Man issues, I read it, and like you said, aside from the one moment of wondering why all the Avengers, I'm sorry, all the Ultimates just left him on the bridge, and wondering why Punisher's trying to cook up, you, you can kind of infer that there's, there's a big who's what's this going on with the Ultimates, because that's referred to several times, and Spider-Man just happens across it. He's on his way to do something completely unrelated. Take down the Sinister Six, take down Norman Osborn, save his family. Actually, he doesn't even know that the Sinister Six is at his house. He's just going to his house to save his family. He's on his way to do that and just happens to swing by a bridge where he sees somebody aiming a gun at Captain America. So he goes and tries to stop Captain America from getting shot, accidentally takes the bullet, gets left on the bridge, and that one teeny tiny bit of crossover is the trigger event for this entire story. Yeah, it does give a different feel to it. It can make the story a little bit odd when you're reading it in isolation because there's very clearly blanks to be filled in. But at the same time, one of the complaints that you can have about a universe like this with so much continuity and so much crossover, especially the Marvel 616, you know, is why does Green Goblin only go off after Spider-Man? Why don't we see him showing up in the X-Men or other titles? Like, why are things paired together and why does it seem like they're frequently isolated? Here they're not isolated. Something major happens at a big point of town, other people notice. And that's not something that you get a lot of. So it's kind of a double-edged sword here. It, it enriches the universe saying, yeah, when things are going down, things are going down for everyone. But at the same time, if you're not buying at all, there are definitely unanswered questions here. Yeah, it's one of those things about a shared universe that's a double-edged sword in another way is, okay, yes, we can acknowledge every time that, you know, why are the other 200 characters not available to take care of this threat? Or we can just focus on the fact that this is a Thor story, so Thor is the one who's going to do it. It's just occasional lines like when the villain says, only the Flash stands in my way, or, or only the Fantastic Four stand in my way, or only Ant-Man stands in my way. Then you have to kind of wonder, well, not really. And actually moviegoers who aren't necessarily comics fans were wondering the same thing about Captain America the Winter Soldier. Where was everybody else while all that big national security stuff was going down? Yeah. Well, we know it was scheduling conflicts that kept Hawkeye out. If you haven't heard about that scene, look it up online. Okay, I didn't know that he was slated for the film. Yeah, he was slated for a film in a very brief scene that would have been awesome, but they just couldn't get Jeremy Renner's schedule to mesh with the Winter Soldier schedule. Gotcha. Um, speaking of levels of death, Norman Osborn got shot in the head in the story called Death of a Goblin. He should be dead in this story. And all we get is a yeah, you should be dead. Huh. 
that's weird. And that is all we get. And then he walks around buck naked for the entire story, which was weird. Yes, with suddenly a pretty extreme religious view. Early on, if you go to that first story arc where Green Goblin and Spider-Man were created by the Oz Serum, there's no indication of what his beliefs are in any way. Whereas in this story, he's so far off his rocker, he believes he's on a mission from God to take down the evil Spider-Man. He says three or four times, God wants me to do this. He's definitely taking ice cream from the crazy machine, but he the, the kind of crazy he has in each story changes flavors from time to time. Because there was all of that stuff about the circles in that first Green Goblin arc, and he sees little putty monsters telling him what to do. Yeah, and hearing all those voices on the bridge. Yeah, and then in 6, he thinks that Peter is his son, and that's why he's doing it all. I forget what his kick is in Death of a Goblin, but now he's on a mission from God to destroy Peter Parker. Yeah, and just to be clear, the way Bendis and Bagley handle it, they're not painting all religious believers with this brush. Oh, no. This is definitely one crazy guy. Yeah. It's not the religion itself. I mean, it's people, it's someone abusing the religious beliefs, which happens in the real world. Just ask any Baptist who isn't from Westboro. He is very much off his rocker. I like the idea in this story of Spider-Man needing to be trained. I mean, sure, he's had more issues than any other character in the universe, but he is young. And he does make foolish mistakes. Sadly, the idea never gets explored in the comics. But I do have to wonder if Bendis fed the idea to the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon people, or if the cartoon people fed the idea to Bendis, or if it was like a joint development thing, because this idea of Spider-Man getting trained by S.H.I.E.L.D. is the very basis of the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon, which started up not too long after the story. So it was already in development whenever the story happened. It was, and Brian Bendis is on the development panel for that series. He does a lot with Marvel Studios in their TV and movie production. He's an advisor on virtually everything that hits any size of screen. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if this was Bendis feeding them, because he already had hints of this in earlier storylines. You know, with Nick Fury saying, when you're 18, you're mine. I'm going to take you in and train you and do this. Yeah, he'd been developing that for a while then. Yeah, so I, I really believe that that was Bendis feeding the TV series. That cartoon, in some ways, is kind of what the ultimate Spider-Man Peter Parker would have been like if he hadn't died here. It could be. I'll take your word for it. I actually cut cable a while ago and haven't seen Ultimate Spider-Man. The last time I had cable, we were one season into Spectacular Spider-Man. Which is, the my the greatest incursion of Spider-Man on screen ever. But that's okay. That's me. Ah. Those two seasons deserved, deserved two more. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's hard to go wrong with Greg Wiseman creator of Gargoyles, went on to do Spectacular Spider-Man, and then Young Justice, if we get into DC cartoons. And it's currently on Star Wars Rebels for the first season. Yeah. Yeah. So I, he's one of those guys where if his name is attached, I expect to enjoy it. Cap has a speech to Peter about running foolish or running in smart whenever there's a problem. It's the kind of thing that I think Peter maybe needed to hear like in the first three or four years of this title. I do think that although he could learn some maturity, he has earned his place by now. So I'm kind of pissed at Cap for not seeing that. But then again, Ultimate Captain America is more than a little bit of a dick through the course of the continuity. He's, he's not regular Captain America. They are not the same personality. No, Ultimate Captain America is the one that, to me, comes across as an experienced soldier. 
right? Captain America in the 616, if he's pushed, he will acknowledge that he has killed people in the war and he will never do it again. So it is very much comics code authority. I don't kill, I don't kill like most 60s heroes. Whereas Ultimate Captain America, he's a lot more of the strategist where it's what is the most efficient way to protect the civilians around here? Yeah, I like that about him. Yeah, that's it. And it's if he decides that, that killing the bad guy is the most efficient way, well, that bad guy is going to be dead. To me, it's just reserving this treatment for Spider-Man is the part that bugs me because he should be riding Tony Stark just as hard. There's that. Because in the Ultimate Tony Stark is just as immature as Ultimate Peter Parker. So instead of riding him, they just don't like each other. Yeah. Peter Parker is faced with either going off to help the Ultimates save the world or to go save his family. And he chooses to go save his family first. And I think that that's a very Peter Parker choice. I like that. It is. And Peter Parker's supporting cast and his life has always been a huge part of his life in every continuity I've seen. Right? doesn't matter if it's House of M, if it's 616, if it's Ultimate. The people around Peter Parker are as much a part of the Spider-Man title as Peter Parker himself. And that's, I think, a lot of what sets him apart. I can't think of any other title that has so many non-hero or villain regulars, right? Norman Osborn, yeah, he was created with intentions to be Green Goblin from the start, depending on his version of the story you hear. Most of the supporting cast are meant to be villains. Gwen, MJ, Flash, J. Jonah Jameson, Harry Osborn, Liz Allen, Betty Brant, Ned Leeds, None of these were created with the intentions of putting on spandex. They were just people. Some of them ended up in the spandex quite some time later, often under different creative teams. But when they first hit the page, they were meant to just be normal people populating Peter's world. Or in the case of Flash Thompson, not spandex, alien slime. Yeah. Yeah. Or John Jameson with his relic that turned him yeah, into the his, band his, wolf. Uh, his, his shaving problems. Yeah. But again, there's a 15-year delay on that. Right. That was never the intention when most of these characters hit the page for the first time ever. Right. So that is, I think, largely what sets Spider-Man apart. So we know that this hit the list of the top 75 Marvel stories of all time. And Marvel has told a lot of stories over the years. When they put out the open call for votes, I put in my votes and only a couple of my votes made it of like the five titles I submitted. I don't even know if more than one made it, but... Part of the reason that a lot of these things hit these lists is they're not just entertaining stories, but sometimes they've got layers and other depths, and they're open to interpretation on a literature scale. So are there deeper meanings in this? Is there a message that this is trying to convey and something that goes beyond just the, you know, here's a fun five-issue romp? I see Peter Parker's saving his family is... is... The ending gives this a literary denouement to the to the concept of the character. He made a really dumb choice because he was 15 or 14 in the ultimate world. He was a freshman in high school or something. I don't know. But in the, in the regular world, he was 15 years old. He made a really dumb choice that led to his uncle getting killed. So in a very real way, he's responsible for his uncle's death, if indirectly. That element of the mythos that also comes over into the ultimate version of spider-man we have bookended with his decision that okay i owe my family and even though there's a whole lot going on in the world right now i need to make sure my family is safe is almost like the absolute direct opposite choice of what he made before 
instead of letting a two-bit crook go and his family pays the price, he is now going to let world salvation go for the sake of saving his family. And I like that. I like that, you know, reversal that they did there. Yeah, we have taken him on an arc. And even as we said, that speech that Cap gives him in issue 156, even if Cap is selling him short, he is still largely saying, this isn't a game. You need to take this seriously. There are tough choices. To me, this story arc says a lot about what it is to be a hero, right? This is a character who can and does choose to stand in front of a bullet to save the life of another human being, even one that really doesn't like him and doesn't get along well with him, right? This is Cap. The ultimate Captain America doesn't care for Spider-Man. I mean, a lot of the Ultimates don't. Iron Man has come to accept him at this point after his initial, what, did you have to go back in time to get him crack about his age? (laughs) Which was probably my favorite part of Ultimate Six. But that is what this is about. This is the definition of a hero. We see Peter time and time again standing up between innocent lives, whether they're related to him or not, and the threats that are out there and saying, this ends here. Or sometimes it's just, hey, look at me. No idea how to put him down. But if they're threatening an innocent, he'll say, hey, over here, come for me instead. And I think that's a a big part of what this is. This whole arc is really about what heroism means. So it's a great story. It's number 75 on the list. I'm a bit surprised that it's not higher. Looking at some of the other stuff that's higher in the list, I'm surprised this is where it is. I certainly think that of all the different stories that the Ultimate Universe has told, (sighs) and you know, I was going to say this is probably the one that has the most impact, but at the same time, the Ultimate Universe has done so much to inform the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and even the other Marvel films that aren't part of the Marvel Studios franchise, that I I really probably should probably retract that. But certainly, this is worthy of being on the list, even higher than where it is. Yeah, I would agree. There's some things on that list where I read it and go, really? That made it? And this one, I don't question why it made it. As you said, there are, we'll get to them, but we'll we'll get to stories that make me question who the voters were. Some of them, regardless of their quality, had a huge impact. And I think that puts them in the list. But But this one, just for sheer quality, deserves to be on the list. It does, yeah. I don't think impact is a big part of why people are voting greatest. So I'm largely happy with the list and the way it came out. There are a few things that make me go, huh, really? And there's some that, as far as I could tell, they are there. Looking at it, I suspect there's a lot of recent readers who started reading Marvel because of the movies. So I see their inclusion as a good sign for the health of the industry that new readers are coming in and saying, well, this is the best story I've read. Mm -hmm. Because when I see some of these show up on the list, it's like, okay, That may be one of the better stories of the past five years, but of the past 75, no. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll stand with you on that one because 75 years is a long time. And really, 25 of that gets very highly neglected. And I'm happily surprised that two books from the Golden Age made it on the list. Yeah. Now, a lot of that could be just because for a large period of time, there were no titles that had impact on current continuity. Right. Some of them are. Like Linda Carter, student nurse. Who knew? She's back. Is she really? Yeah, Linda Carter, student nurse, came back as the night nurse in four issues in 1971. And Linda Carter is the night nurse that 
was romantically involved with Doctor Strange and showing up in Bendis's. I did not know that. That's the night nurse. I didn't realize that was the night nurse. Yeah, the book that got canceled to make room for Spider-Man under Marvel's publishing contract was Linda Carter, student nurse. She had like 14 issues, I think, maybe nine issues, something. Not a very long run. Yeah, it was nine issues as Linda Carter, student nurse, and four issues as night nurse in uh, 1971, as written by Gene Thomas. The night nurse issues are on Marvel Digital Unlimited as well, if anyone wants to check those out. More as an oddity, it was... uh, Neither of those books felt like they were Marvel continuity at the time, right? Night Nurse was no, there were no superpowers. There was nothing like that. She was just working in an emergency room at night. Linda Carter doesn't even appear in the fourth and final issue. That's more a ghost story with a member of her supporting cast. Huh. Well, Night Nurse was one of three or four books that Marvel tried to do all together at one time to just bring more female characters in. They did Claws of the Cat, I think. Yep. First issue of that is also on Digital Unlimited. I think Shaun of the She-Devil, maybe? Yeah, that was uh, relaunching that, because Shaun of the She-Devil first appeared in the early 50s. Okay. And I want to say there was one more, but I can't remember which one it was. But yeah, but none of those lasted for very long. (laughs) No. No, and even the Night Nurse title had three major characters. Two of them have come back. So one of them ended up working with the Avengers in a medical capacity for a few issues. Linda Carter is the night nurse that's, I think, uh, Brian K. Vaughn originally brought her back in Doctor Strange, The Oath. But yeah, Death of Spider-Man. It had its Fallout series, Ultimate Fallout, that aside from wrapping up the plot threads and character beats, I didn't really care much for. But it's it's a great story. It is. It's one that's easy to recommend. Although I do recommend if you are picking it up, try to track down Avengers vs. New Ultimates at the same time. It will be a richer experience if you actually read all of the parts of the story instead of just these five. Although to be fair, that story is picking up on plot threads that Mark Miller had been doing in ultimate um, Avengers for a while. So it's, it is worth reading. As is actually, I would say about the first four years, at least in the Marvel ultimate Marvel universe is worth reading. And then yeah, a lot of stuff between there and this ultimate Spider-Man is worth reading. As you said, right through the record setting Bendis and Bagley run. And when I say record setting, there was no writer-penciler team in Marvel Comics history that stayed together as long as they did. In issue count, not in year count, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, if you're going for uninterrupted, then yes. And it's not that Ultimate Spider-Man is bad after that. It's just that that Bendis-Bagley run is the highlight of the history. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of it, they had strong ideas coming in. And by the time it was done, they knew how to work together so well. That it shows, which is part of the reason they brought Bagley back for this story arc. And it was a good choice. Yeah. Bookending the story this way was was an excellent choice. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the Imminens or, you know, with La Fuente or anyone else who stepped in after Bagley. It's just when Bendis and Bagley have worked together for so long, bringing anyone else in, it doesn't quite feel like the same book because Bagley was just as influential as the writer. Mm hmm. And a lot of that is Bendis. One of the first things he does when he pairs up with a new artist is asking them, what do you want to draw? <laughs> and he will deliver scripts that get the artist excited about what they're going to be drawing. Because he knows if the artist is excited about what they're drawing, you get a better product. Right. All right. So I'd just like to thank John for coming in and, and stepping in on this. He's one of many guest hosts that you're going to be hearing over the course of the 75-week run. 
And you'll actually hear him again when we discuss story number 62. So in the meanwhile, when we're prepping for next week's, if you want to read in advance so that you've already had it read, the next story is story 74, Next Wave Agents of Hate. It was a 12-issue run, also available on Marvel Digital Unlimited, and has been collected. And that is going to be the topic of next week's podcast. So, John, thanks for joining us. Really enjoy being here. If you want to hear more of my podcasty goodness, I am over at Avengers Inspirations with my daughter Lily talking about early Avengers-related comics. The idea is that if the character is in the Marvel Studios film franchise, we're going to be talking about their comics. So that is at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and the Complete Marvel Reading Order podcast feed on iTunes. I'm also podcasting my way through the Star Wars Expanded Universe over at the Star Wars Saga Cast, which is at thestarwarssagacast.com. Not entirely sure where that show is going to be when this hits at the end of the year, but probably... I'll be wrapping up my discussion of some 90s stories, getting ready to change gears and talk about some 70s stories again. So, yes, those are my two podcasting homes. Hope we can come give a listen.